Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Cloud Unfiltered. Hey, before we start, I need to ask you a quick favor. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, when it's through, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to simply rate and review the podcast. I know everyone who produces podcasts asks for this, and it may seem kind of silly, but it's just how the iTunes system works. And we want as many people as possible to find out about this podcast so that they can enjoy it as well. That's it. We thank you so much for your help, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are. My name is Ali Amagasu, and you're listening to Cloud Unfiltered. Today we've got a special episode for a number of reasons, one of which is that I have a new co-host that I'm really excited about. Um, his name is Pete Johnson. He works for Cisco. He knows a lot of stuff, and he has a wild herd of chihuahuas apparently loose somewhere in his home right now, so uh, yes, he claims tried. to have them, yeah, he claims to have them under control. We'll see. But uh, Pete, can you tell the audience a little bit about uh, what you've done in the past, what you do for Cisco now, wow. and uh, that would be great. Well, yeah, so you might remember me. I actually looked this up. It was episode 36 that I was a guest on, so I'm happy to be back in a co-host capacity, so thanks for having me. And yeah, so I, uh, strictly speaking, I'm a technical solutions architect in Cisco's global partner organization, and what that means is on the cloud products that we have in the Cisco portfolio, like CCP and Cloud Center and some of those things, uh, I'm responsible for partner enablement. So teaching partners, the Cisco ecosystem of resellers that we sell a, a ridiculously large percentage of our product through, I bring them up to speed on what these products are, what the benefits are to their customers, and what the best selling motions are for them. You know you have done a good job as guest when you get invited to be a co-host. That's well, all I, I know, say. right? Well, hopefully, hopefully you won't regret that, and and hopefully, you know, my first uh, my first suggestion for guest that takes us in a slightly different, but I think interesting direction. We we won't regret any of that. <laughs> Wow, there's some pressure on you there, Anosh. All right, um, then I'll go ahead and introduce our first guest. Uh, well, not our first guest, but our main guest today, uh, Anosh Willie. He is the CEO of Zentors. Welcome, Anosh. Hi, Ali. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, we talked a little bit before, and, and I think you have a very interesting path um, as to how you uh, or why you went ahead and, and started the company that you're running right now. Can you give us a little bit of background about why Zentors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first, let me echo what Pete said. You probably will actually regret some of this podcast, but I think that's part <laughs> of the fun. Um, so I, I came from the development background. Um, I then through and then I got into networking and sort of the infrastructure side, and you know, found myself working for a venture capital firm called Nantworks out in LA. Uh, founded by this real visionary named Patrick Soon Xiong, was really changing the way we were delivering healthcare in the United States. Uh, he was actually ranked by Forbes as world's um, you know wealthiest American in healthcare. So I, sometimes I joke and I say Patrick got confused one day and he hired me thinking I could help him. But when I went over there, I ran cloud and high performance computing, and it was one of the first private cloud builds I would say uh, for kind of a major U.S. enterprise and learned a lot from there. And one of the things, it was not just kind of running cloud for these different business units of which we had about 30 or 40 doing anything from genomics to drug discovery, pharmaceutical workloads. Uh, but we also had a, a venture capital side uh, for which I, I did diligence. And 
you know, one of the experiences I had was just saw a lot of different product companies come through uh, looking for funding and really seeing, you know, what VCs looked at before they funded a company. And so learned a lot about that. Um, a lot of my background comes from product development and, you know, looked to start a, a product uh, uh, from there, but realized, you know, saw a lot of these companies actually fail as they were getting investment. And over 80% of the companies that you would put investment in, um, you know, typically fail or, or don't yield the uh, return. Uh, and that's a typical number from any VC portfolio. And when you really sit down and ask the question why, it came down to this one answer, which was sales execution, right? So if you look at how a, um, a company starts up, you know, you usually get a bunch of tech founders, they're smart, they come to a VC and they say, hey, I've got a great idea for a product. VC says, great, here's your seed round, you know, three to 500K. They come back and they say, look, I've got a product. VC says, well, that's not really a product. I still have to download it and compile it myself. You know, here's your round A, um, three to five million. You know, come back when you've got a product and a couple of customers. And they do that. And then, they, then the VC says, great, you've got a couple of customers. Now you've got to scale to take the TAM, the total addressable market. Because if you don't, someone else will enter that market and confuse that, right? We're actually seeing that right now with the container market. Right. Docker was first in there, had a, a tremendous amount of market share and, and mind share, really. But because they haven't, you know, they haven't quite succeeded in taking the total addressable market, now you're seeing other players enter, Kubernetes, Mesosphere, et cetera. And now that's sort of confusing the TAM. So where, where maybe two years ago a customer would have said, hey, I'm going containers, I'm most likely going Docker. Now they're stepping back and they're saying, well, maybe I'll try Kubernetes or Docker or both, right? And so it's this sales execution risk, which we call kind of that round B. That's where we see kind of most companies fail. And, and that was really interesting to me. And so while I wanted to start a product company, I knew that, hey, if I entered into the, into the market and I said, hey, I've got yet another new product for DevOps, a CIO would say, well, gosh, join the line. I've got 30 other people trying to pitch me this product, right? What, what was really missing in the market was the ability to kind of go and attack the, the actual outcome. So if I'm a CIO, I'm coming into a new company, I'm not saying, Hey, Ali, let's go build the best, biggest exchange environment anybody's ever seen, right? It's like, no, I don't need that. Office 365, I've solved my problem. That's an email problem, though. We know that problem. It's been solved for 30 years. Um, what they really want to do, though, is take that sort of method or get that outcome for cloud or DevOps, but it's not that easy because today I've got to go out and buy a bunch of products and I've got to consult with a, a number of different companies or vendors. And then it's on me to sort of try to put that and mesh that together, right? And so that's one of the bigger failure patterns we see uh, as customers try to go to cloud and try to embrace this. Interesting. Hey, Pete, before you ask a question, I'm going to interrupt you for a sec, Anoj, and um, say your headphones, for whatever reason, when the cord is hitting your laptop or whatever before, it's picking it up, actually, the audio. So oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. So I don't want you to have to stop moving. So maybe you just grab the headphone cord with your hand or something to kind of stop it from shaking around. Got because, it. Uh, it's just creating a little bit of, I, I, I assume you're hearing it as well, Pete. Yeah, there's that regret that we already warned people about. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear it a little bit too, but you know, it, it didn't get in the way for me of all the smart things and those just said. I know that's why I didn't stop him. I didn't want to stop him. So, so Inos, thank you for explaining. Um, I appreciate you. Um, uh, telling us how you got to this point where you where you started Zentors. Um, so, what are you guys doing? Do you have like how long has the company been around, and 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 what are you doing? Yeah, great. Uh, so, the company's been around for about two years. Um, our strength is, and, and what we do is we're a consulting shop, so we don't resell, we don't sell any product. 
we consult with customers to help them um, build and realize their initiatives, whether they're in cloud, DevOps, or big data. And while those are our strengths, one of our differentiators is not only do we do this directly with customers and clients, we actually help VARs, so the reseller community, also um, build up their own capabilities around those practices in DevOps, cloud, and big data. So we have a recipe that we sort of take customers through, um, which leads to you know, successful initiatives. But on top of that, we also help uh, enable a teach you how to fish model with, with VARs so they can also um, you know, figure out how to enter this market and, uh, and be relevant there. Nice. Nice. That's you're the second person I've um, spoken to recently who's talked about the uh, teach them how to fish model that uh, there's a lot of uh, consultancies or even professional services organizations out of larger companies that will send folks to sit, you know, on premises and actually help teams run things, but that often they walk away and the team is not equipped to run things. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the reasons why we saw this. So when I when I left um, that venture capital firm, um, you know, I went to go work at a VAR, right? Because I realized, hey, if sales execution is a problem, who has really solved and who understands sales execution? And when you look around, um, you know, a lot of times there there's this notion in the channel where like, oh, wow, you're going to go work for a VAR, you know, insert finger and mouth. And I think that's very unfair because, you know, we look at the channel and we say, oh, they're not involving, you know, they're not moving forward. But what we don't realize is a channel has spent a tremendous amount of time figuring out how to get into customer environments, how to understand really what a customer wants and how to and how they want to purchase. And so there's value there. And, and that's the reason why folks like Cisco and Microsoft have these large channels. Right. What the channel struggles with, though, is trying to build something new. Right. So a channel is used to reselling. They're used to being fed. Hey, here's a product. This product will solve this problem. Right. But now we're at this point where it's so complex that, you know, gone are the days where an Oracle can walk in and say, hey, I've got your entire data strategy. Right. It actually requires uh, an ecosystem of players um, in terms of technology, as well as a, a vision and ability to execute that across kind of a complex landscape within the customer in order to drive success, right? And, you know, you'll hear me use these analogies, but I use the Lego analogy. We've all bought Lego before. Um, there's a nice picture on the front of a Lego box, but you open it up and it's a bunch of pieces, right? Luckily for us, there's a guidebook in there that's telling you how to put those pieces together. So the pieces right now are all these vendor, these different vendor pieces. And what's missing for a customer is this digital guidebook to put all those pieces together in a way that says, yes, that's that picture I wanted in the front. Um, and, and so this is, this is really what we provide customers. It's that digital Lego manual. And that Lego analogy is spot on because, I mean, if you look at how IT organizations are built today, like the number of vendors and the number of point products stitched together, literally, a Lego box is worth. Right, so. exactly. Pete, I've been um, hogging the conversation. What kind of questions do you have for Anoj? Yeah, I've got a lot of questions for Anoj. So one of the reasons, Anoj, you know I wanted to have you on, if you look at the other guests we've had on the program, it's been typically product guys or it's been analyst guys who were trying to point out whether the product guys are doing a good job or not. But but you've been on both sides, both the having to do it and having to help others do it, the, both sides of the cloud adoption uh, Mechanic. So what I what I wanted to ask you most of all was what is a typical enterprise adoption for some kind of public or, or private or mixed uh, cloud environment look like? And what are the things that they typically trip over? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I'd say, you know, I, I talk about the, the cloud journey in, in two facets. So one is the what I call the short-term decisions and the long-term decisions. So we get wrapped around a lot of things like product, of course, right? Like, hey, what, what am I using underneath in terms of infrastructure? Is it Hyperflex? Is it some kind of hyperconverged? Are there SANs or NFS, NAS, you know, storage, compute, all of that? And then on top of that, we also get wrapped around, you know, cloud management platforms like... Right. Is it you know Cloud Center or 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 the other ones out there, or is it AWS or is it Azure? And who am I who am I using? And yes, those decisions are important, but the more long term decisions are what I call architecture and the user experience, right? So let's talk about architecture for a second. Um, you know, look, I could sell you different storage manufacturing from Pure, from NetApp, from EMC, and I'm not one or the other, and they all typically do a similar thing, right? Um, and they're easy to swap one for another. But if I came and I said, hey, Pete, you've got to change your entire database architecture and rewrite all your schemas, that's a much bigger problem, yes. right? And and so that architectural decision is a very kind of long-term decision. I know we talk Agile. Agile is awesome. It's a phenomenal methodology, but Agile is not for everything. Um, so, for instance, if I'm, I'm... I'm going to assume you guys are in a building somewhere, right, <laughs> taking this call, and... When they put that building together, somebody didn't build a room and say, oh, Pete, let's go iterate on this next room and see what happens. You know, <laughs> that, that whole thing was planned, right? And it has to be because that's how buildings have to get built. Um, so the architecture side is a long-term decision, and that generally has to be sort of planned out. So that's one place that people get tripped up because to come back and to re-architect something, um, it's hard. you can't change the foundation of a building, right? You, you almost have to tear the whole thing down and build it up again. Right. The, the second big thing is the experience. A lot of people kind of forego this because they think, hey, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of a product or I'm thinking in terms of AWS or, or Azure and, and which should I go into. You really have to think about the experience to the user, right? So, um, you know, just think about this front end thing. I could give you a iPhone. I could give you an Android phone. Both of, both of them do the same thing. I can text. I can send email, watch videos. But the user experience is very different. And you switch one for another, and you cause almost like, you know, that, this is why you have people who are so into Apple phones or so into Android phones is because they have, they have figured out this is the experience they want. And if you look at it, this is what Amazon figured out. Amazon said, hey, I launched the service S3. Four years later, they launched a service EC2. But in that four years, they figured out what kind of user experience do we want? Oh, it's developers who are using our stuff. They need, you know, they don't want pretty... GUIs, they need better CLIs, they need better APIs to hit this, they need console access, right? How do we do billing? How do we do reconciliation? Once they figured out that experience, then they could increase the velocity of their services. Now you see Amazon push out a service every two to three months, yeah. right? But they didn't get to that velocity until they figured out the experience. And so I would say those are the those are the two big areas where where people kind of struggle with. It's that experience, um, setting up that UI layer, that user experience layer, and then making sure that they've got fundamentally correct architecture underneath. Now, let me double click on that just a little bit. So you, you, your first analogy, you talked about user and you talked about consumer as the user in the iPhone versus, versus Android experience. But then when you start talking about AWS, the user all of a sudden now becomes a developer. So to me, there's still, there's still this mindset in a lot of IT shops it's very much us versus them. And the joke I always make about this is developers don't call it shadow IT. They just call it work. <laughs> right. Right. So, so how do you see that 
the, our, our IT guys finally starting to see that like speed is more important to developers than anything else and start as part of the cloud adoption cycle, making it so that they can speed up those iterations and be part of that agile process? Or do you, you still see some friction there and then wanting to maintain some control and go back to like the, the pets days of software deployments? So I, I think, so let me, take a step back and answer that question. Um, so is IT, so are, are IT still blockers? Yes, in some cases they are. In a lot of cases though, what's been for, you know, what, what's been great to see is IT is really on board. They understand that cloud is the future, whether it's public or private or hybrid. Um, they understand that they really need to enable developers in getting that work to market, right? Getting that product to market. And so what we saw with cloud is, you know, the pendulum was on one end where developers had to open tickets and ask IT yeah. for resources, et cetera, and it took a long time. Then all of a sudden, we, you know, what, with cloud, we swung the pendulum all the way to the other end, and developers were like, wait, this is awesome. I'm going out <laughs> my own instances yeah. and stuff. And then like a week goes by, and they're like, oh, wait, now I've got to wire my EC2 instances to my S3 buckets. And then like, oh, wait, now I've got to figure out VPCs. And then weeks and weeks go by, and then the product owner comes and says, hey, why aren't you building features? That's what we're paying you to do. The developer's like, oh yeah, gosh, I've spent the last six weeks mucking around in cloud, you know, in AWS trying to figure out how to put these things together. So the pendulum went all the way the other way. And we work with a lot of customers who have, um, you know, workloads, what we call out in the wild, that are completely unmonitored, unmanaged, and unsecured. Uh, unsecured and developers have gone out and sort of made a mess, right? And so really you just want to, there's a middle ground there where, um, Developers can get the self-service and do the things they want to, but um, it's secured and it's a way that we, you know, we expect them to work. And, and so I think, you know, if, if I use the, the bank analogy, right, hey, I would love to go to a teller or, or sorry, I'd love to get things out of an ATM because I don't have to wait in line for a bank teller and fill out all these things. Um, and yes, an ATM is much more uh, or, or even mobile banking is it's much uh, it's much more convenient. However, if my identity gets stolen, there's at least some guardrails in place that only $300 or $500 could get taken out of that account, right? And right. so IT is there to put in sort of those guardrails, right? And while allowing developers to, to kind of move and work faster. And so we're, we're seeing that now. We're seeing really IT kind of get on board. And how do I become part of the development work stream as opposed to um, saying, hey, I, I just need to kind of, you know, check these boxes and make sure these things get done because my job is only so big. Yeah, I'm totally stealing that ATM analogy. So, Ali, for the article <laughs> I turn into you, I'll credit Mr. Willie, but I'm totally stealing that. Uh, <laughs> I have a quick question. Does, you know, you're talking about putting on guardrails. Um, does that, it, it sounds like you mean moving um, workloads on site or are there ways to have guardrails and still have those workloads in public clouds? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way I talk about guardrails is, um, you know, you really want to protect the users. I mean, from so from a technical perspective, you would just protect. Just think about PCI when we put PCI data into some place versus you know our regular data, right? We used to segment PCI data, and we still do to some degree. Segment PCI data way out there so we can control how much is audited and contain that. Uh, as well as if somebody broke in and tried to get that PCI data, there's a whole different list of um, security. Um, protections around that data, right? When I'm talking about this kind of safeguarding, what I'm really talking about is being part of the process of putting code out to, to production. So a developer is not going to be thinking about like how secure is this code? So 
I'm, I'm going to make a caveat here. We are not a security company, Zentors. However, we do end up doing a lot in code security. And our thesis is that customers who don't look at this and don't pay attention to code security are the ones who are going to get owned in the next couple of years, right? Because you look at the um, Equifax breach. That was an Apache Struts vulnerability. Nobody came in through a firewall, right? Um, Forever 21 got breached about 15 years ago. People came in through the search bar, right? Nobody's bashing in through a firewall. People are coming in now through things like malformed containers. So the surface attack areas is much greater. So to think that a developer or to put the onus of that person like, you know, hey, don't use this package because it's a malformed package. Well, how do they know that? They have to get that information when they're compiling their build. When they're coding, they have to say, hey, you try to use this package. It is a non-signed package. We're not going to allow you to deploy that code. And then the developer can say, oh, OK, here are the packages I can use. Let me use that. That's one of the best packages. If I don't get that feedback, though, within four weeks, and I'm onto something else, and I don't get that until you know security has run a scan in, in a reactive mode, this is what is really slowing down the pace of production, right? Because I'm not getting that feedback. And so now I've got to figure out, wait, well, my, my code didn't deploy. I got a ticket back saying, OK, security saying, you know, you have a malformed package, et cetera, versus I got that right away. I made that change, and then I pushed that code to, to production. And, and the way we, you know, right now, security to me, the way when we deal with security teams, it's very much like going to the TSA. So, you know, I'm sure you guys take flights. I go to the TSA, to me, it's the worst security experience ever. It's like, oh, you got to take off some of your clothes. We might touch you. It's just that <laughs> all around, right? Versus a casino, right? I can go to a casino, and I can gamble, and I can do whatever I want. But the moment I step out of line, two guys in black suits are going to come and escort me off the premises, right? And so my experience was unfettered. As a developer, I was able to go gamble, do my thing, right? But the moment I said, oh, wait, I, I'm, I'm going to break the rules, I was immediately you know, curtailed, right? So, and to, you know, casino security is far more effective than the TSA. And this, these are the types of security provisions that need to now go in place for code security. So you're like this cornucopia of analogies here then. So, you're, <laughs> you're, so your argument then is that uh, security and other aspects that affect a CSED tool chain should be more like casino security and less like TSA, if I can... Yeah, yeah, and and but by that I mean it should be part of the experience, right? It should not it should not hinder the experience. So I when I go to a casino, I'm, I'm still having a great experience, but the moment I step out of that, out of what they've uh, identified or they've defined as safe behavior, then um, something gets enacted, right? Versus today, I deploy. Think about IT. I deploy a bunch of things into production. Security will run a bunch of reactive scans and things like that, and say, "Hey, wait a minute." There's some things that are broken here. Now they've got to go back and talk to the developers. Did you deploy this? Is this yours? Right? Um, and and have that kind of conversation. Now, what about if you're just at the casino ATM trying to get cab money and your friend <laughs> and comes up to you and says, you're just going to give it all back to them anyway? You shouldn't be there. And no, no, I swear, I'm just getting cab money. <laughs> That's never <laughs> happened to you, has it? That, that, that didn't happen a week and a half ago, the last time we saw each other. <laughs> and you know the other thing about that, just, uh, just as a, a comedic aside, did, did you see that the minimum amount of of default withdrawal was two hundred bucks on that ATM? Oh, that's 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 the great thing about finding people on a gambling floor. I know it went up, it went from two hundred bucks up to a thousand. 
and, and like like the suggestion was you you want to give you want to get 200 right and i'm just like no i just need 40 for the cab tomorrow i swear <laughs> wow what pete doesn't tell you is he ended up spending two thousand dollars that night so i did probably, not i probably I did not. so this was so this was at partner connection week that we last saw each other um where so it's funny to me that you make that casino analogy when that's the last place i literally saw you um, it was top of mind, so to speak. I know, I know, right? Well, now let me ask you, so you talked about this this journey from the customer perspective and sort of the two tribes within the customer, the, the, the developers that are sitting in the line of business teams now and the the, the IT ops guys that, that typically take care of the hardware. Now, what about the the resellers? It's it's interesting to me, the business model that you guys have at Zentars, that it's it's very much like a you know, teaching people to fish out there in the reseller community. You know, I find in my job in trying to enable the resellers to, to, to be able to speak to these cloud products that a lot of them are uncomfortable getting outside that zone of, of you know, feeds and speeds and talking to just the person that's going to go plug it in a rack somewhere that they, they typically are uncomfortable having that conversation with the developer to talk about like in the CCP case to say like, look, do you want to have to continue to go manage your own Kubernetes clusters in the public cloud when your IT guys could do that for you and you get to recoup some of the, some of the resources so you can put them back on code? Uh, what are you seeing in the reseller community? How, how comfortable is the reseller community getting with those conversations? And where do you think we are in that journey of sort of expanding the role of that, that reseller? We're further behind than we should be. So just to be candid, and you guys know me. <laughs> uh, so it that that's kind of where I'm going to go. So you know, with you look at Cisco. Cisco's investing billions of dollars into this transformation. Um, we just came back from Partner Connection Week, and I got to say, I was unimpressed with how far the resellers have come. And it you know, it's not easy to completely transform your business. It's you know, Cisco is doing what Chuck Robbins sat down and told me was an open heart surgery, right? They are trying to turn a very massive ship. A, a company, a $200 billion company is not an easy turn to make, right? You're talking about sort of an aircraft carrier or bigger, right? Trying to, trying to make that turn. Um, and so there's a lot of things that we're seeing, you know, in the reseller community. When you, when you make that turn, uh, you know, a couple of things happen there. There's, there's a, a wake that's created, right? And yeah. so Cisco's trying to make this turn without creating a, a huge wake and, and wiping out half their partners. They're trying to, it's not enough that Cisco evolves, right? And, and crosses the sort of river, if you will. They've got to throw a bridge behind them and sort of bring all these other partners along. Because if you think about it, I mean, Cisco, the channel makes up, I believe, above 86% of Cisco's revenue, right? So, and Cisco's been phenomenal at building the channel and it's been a great strength of theirs. Um, how do we make sure it does not turn into a boat anchor, right? Yeah. And that, so, so that you guys can make the turn. And that, that's really the, the, the challenge there. And so I think there's a couple of uh, things that I've seen with the resellers. You're seeing some of the, what I'm seeing from the Cisco perspective is this openness to start to engage with other companies. Um, and what Cisco has been great at, you know, look, Cisco's made a bunch of bonehead moves. That's, that's no secret. But I think what Cisco has been great at is saying, Hey, um, listen, we can't do this by ourselves, right? And we think we need help. Uh, we're going to partner with you know, with, with other um, companies who are pioneers in this space. We're gonna allow other companies on our GPL. 
we are going to um, start a whole different type of partner community. So we, Centaurs, are part of a, a partner community called the DSI, Digital Systems Integrators. And you know we don't resell. That's not typical for Cisco to partner with a company that doesn't resell their products, right? Yeah. So they they see value, however, in the in the consultative approach and the fact that we're able to kind of have and um, execute on those DevOps, cloud, big data conversations, and then ultimately you know help um, help potentially seed some some Cisco product through that. Um, so so what what we're seeing with the resellers, I mean. You look at it, a reseller is a cash. So if you look at what a reseller is, it's it's a sales organization. Um, they're a cash flow company, right? So they can't take four people and put them in a room and say, hey, you know, come out a year later and tell us about your cool product, right? right? They, they've got to be able to, within a quarter or two, um, make a turn and then and then say, hey, we're, we're getting into this market. Now, when you get into a cloud, big data, DevOps market, you can't just dip your toe into that and say, hey, look, we hired a guy who's really smart in a cloud or a gal who's really good at big data, and now we do big data, right? Mm -hmm. they got to be able to go to market and differentiate. So that takes them about a year or so. Um, and so I built a cloud and uh, DevOps practice for a reseller out in um, the West Coast, Trace3, right? And we were able to kind of you know, build that, make it successful. My co-founder, Juan Guevara, built a big data um, practice out there. And we took it from about zero to 40 million in, in under three years. So for a $300 million bar, it's about 10% of their revenue in under three years. It, it was a good kind of leap. Um, we also helped uh, take their services blend from about 5%. So only 5% was services, 95% was hardware. And we grew that to about 20%, which, which you know, has a bunch of implications across the VAR, right? Uh, from different products, different conversations, et cetera. But that is, that's not an easy thing to do for a VAR, right? That, that VAR really had to sit down, invest, and make a gut change because you've got a number of salespeople in that company that are making money by going to kind of what I call the old watering hole, which is yeah. quickly drying up, which is sort of the hardware software um, slinging. Go, right? back, go back three years later, sell them the latest gear that's got the new features, you know, and if you've got a, if you've got a big enough patch of relationships in, you know, whatever whatever geogra geography, like in, like you're sitting in Colorado, if your geo is Col Colorado and you've, you've got like 25 companies, divvy it up into, into groups of four and visit one every, you know, you keep going back and forth and cycling through that. It's, yeah, it's a different sales model now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what VARs have been used to is their supplier, like a Cisco, would take them in and say, hey, we're Cisco, this is our VAR with us, we're going to sell you these products. You know, Cisco or the supplier might do the majority of the sale. Maybe the VAR did some of the sale. Um, and then the product got sold through. That's not what's happening today, right? right? Customers don't need that help. They can go directly to the vendor. They're far more informed and educated. They know in many cases a lot more about the product than, than the VAR or sometimes even the vendor does. Yeah. So when you come to the table, what they're asking for is how does this fit into my greater initiative? Right, and how did how did these sets of products kind of help me enable my vision, or how do they compare against these other products? And so that traditional way of selling is is quickly dying out. What what really is evolving now is this more consultative led sell, where you can come in and say, okay, I get it. You've got a number of these products. You're this far in the journey because customers are not just starting their cloud journey anymore, or their DevOps journey. They're they're you know um, a good couple of years in. And so how do I accelerate you? And that's, that's really what we do for customers, right? A lot of these customers, are, they're fairly smart. They're fairly intuitive. Um, but what might take them you know, two or three years to do, we're going to help them do in about um, six or seven months. So, that, so that's more, you talk about the consultative selling, and it's much more focused on business outcomes than 
you know, can I sell you the latest, greatest router and switch, right? And have you found, because we've had this, we've had this part of this conversation before, have you found that it continues to be, you have to invest some more work upfront and with a different audience, but that the long-term payoff becomes better because the margins on software is better? Are you still finding that or has that, has that dynamic changed? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two things. Uh, one is the just the sales cycle. So just let's just talk about, we'll get really concrete on that. Um, we did a big three-letter media company in the West Coast. There's a few of those. So, um, you know, when, when we were kind of selling them or building their private cloud initiative for them, we had to speak to 26 different teams, right? Go. And imagine that from a salesperson's perspective, right? A salesperson is playing a quarter-by-quarter quarter game. They have a quota that they have to meet. And so if they've got to meet 26 teams just before they can get that initial yeah. Yes or no, even from a customer, they're not going to do that. And we see this over and over again. So you, we can enable salespeople all day long. We can send them to training and teach them like, this is cloud and here's why it's important. But when they're going through that sales cycle and all of a sudden the, the, their IT director says, you know what, that's no longer my decision. That's the compute and virtualization team and you need to talk to them. Compute and virtualization team says, no, you got to talk to the database team, but we're not going to introduce you to them. <laughs> right. And all of a sudden the salesperson sees their prospects like uh, this is, I'm not going to be able to help this customer, right, is, is what they think. And so they, they say, look, I'm just going to go back down for that storage refresh or that server refresh. So how do you really stitch that conversation through with the customer, right? And so that's that's really the biggest thing we see um, is, is that limiter. Right, uh, and if I'm the customer, what I want to know, because customers, you figure, are listening to this right now, mm -hmm. is how do I overcome that kind of built-in problem? You know, the fact that right now, yes, to, to in order to fix this, it's going to take 26 meetings. Oh, my gosh. How do I get this person in who's going to consult, help us accelerate our adoption? So I guess that's just an interesting point for anyone listening to consider is well, it's you know, they're trying to right? fix it. What? It's alignment, right? That's that's kind of what we've talked about before is it's yeah, it's an alignment problem. And as the salesperson, you're you're kind of playing the role of like therapist, right? And trying to get the different different exactly. parts of the family together. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's exactly a therapy session. And actually we have therapy sessions we call them workshops though. Um, <laughs> and, and we bring different groups of the customer. And so we did that one for that media company. And the day before the VP of applications called us and said, Hey, can you uninvite the network team? Um, <laughs> we said, no, we, we don't know how to do that first of all. <laughs> But secondly, you, we have to have a conversation like, well, why would we want to do that? And, and, and they said, well, you know, the network team, they just get in the way of everything. It takes so long to get through their processes, blah, blah, blah. And they're just going to stop this whole thing. And we said, do you think you can build this private cloud initiative without the network? And the app said, well, no, of course not. So we said, all right. We brought the network team to the, to the table. And then in that session, we were able to find out why the network team was creating such a um, kind of a pushback on a lot of things and, and solve for some of those problems. And so, you know, we did another workshop in Colorado where the VP of IT said, no, nah, the devs get everything as, as fast as possible. We spin up VMs faster than they can consume them. Um, someone was in that workshop, a dev texted his VP, that VP of apps came in, pointed at the VP of IT and said, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but swore at him and said, uh, <laughs> hey, say that, say that again. <laughs> And the VP of IT went red and said, well, what are you talking about? I, you know, and they started to get into it. The VP of apps said, no, I know you think you guys spin up these VMs, but it takes my guys two weeks before the network's open, another yeah. two weeks before the data's there, another yeah. two weeks before the security guys open it so I can get it from outside. And they started fighting. And 
you know, so this is this is really what's happening within these customers' uh, environments. Um, it's it's an alignment issue, right? As as Pete was mentioning, and so for the reseller, the reseller has to figure out, hey, how do I align these folks around something? Because if the leaders aren't aligned, if they're not in agreement, everybody else is left to fight bloody, unwinnable battles, right? Mm. And and what you see, especially in these bigger in, engagements, um, you know, and 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 the bigger companies. You know, VMware has aligned themselves with the virtualization team, so that's potentially what they're pushing. Cisco's done a great job on the networking side and aligned themselves there, so the network team is pushing something potentially different. And then Oracle has done a great job, you know, aligning with sort of their data folks. And so you've got three VPs now who are both saying, or all three are saying, nope, we need to build a private cloud initiative, but one is saying we need to build it the VMware way, one is saying the Cisco way, one is saying the Oracle way. Really what the customer needs is to build it in their way. Right, just like we talked about, how do I create that enterprise experience for myself? Right, I'm a media company. I want to create this type of experience. And and you kind of brought this up earlier, Pete. You were saying, hey, look, you know, I've got now users who are using cloud. I've got IT. I've got dev. And truly, what it comes to, you know, when you look at a cloud in an enterprise, you will actually have a stratification of menus. Right, yeah. just like when we go to fast food, what we're buying from is burgers, fries, and shakes. That's what we see. Um, that's our menu, and we're the end user. But the people who are potentially, you know, cooking it, or or the manager of the store, the menu that they're buying from is a different menu. They're buying, you know, pounds of potatoes and pounds of meat and pounds of tomatoes and things like that. And so they have a different menu. So it's how do you kind of construct that experience for that customer and for the different users of that cloud platform? So that you get the right menu to the right audience, right? Right. That's right. And what I'm curious about is, were you able to solve that problem? Like, where you went in there, and they they didn't want to bring the network team in. Yeah, and and so here's how we solve this problem. Um, um, we we don't try to bite the whole elephant. Like we, um, so the old way of solving this problem. And by the way, I tried this before, and the only reason I know this is because I failed so miserably at this a couple of times before we figured it out at that pharmaceutical company. Um, the old way we used to do it is, hey, let's go and gather all the requirements, right? And uh, we had hired a big five consulting shop to come and do that, and we had been failing at this cloud initiative internally. This is when I was on the customer side at this pharmaceutical uh, company. And you know, this consulting company said, hey, let's go and interview all your yeah. business units and figure out what they wanted. And they came back and they said, hey, you need to build these 300 services. And look, you know at the face of that, that's the wrong thing to do. And, and Pete's heard me say this, I don't go to a restaurant because it's got the most items on the menu, right? Like, wow, Cheesecake Factory, they added two more pages. Let's go over there, Pete. <laughs> That's not happening, right? It, it's, it's not, it's the experience. Like, you know, am I going for a fine dining experience, a fast food experience, et cetera? And for an enterprise, that's super important to cultivate. You really have to figure out, you know, if I'm a media company or if I'm a retail company, like what is the experience that my consumers want? And you focus on that. Because all that other stuff below is going to change, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it might be AWS one day, it might be Azure one day, it uh, might be Cloud Center, and then Cisco finds you know the newer product that comes out later, and so uh, those things will change. But if you focused on the top layer, which is the experience, and you make sure that you've cultivated and you understand your user experience, it doesn't matter if the products underneath are going to change and you move from Docker to Kubernetes, right? Um, the developer experience should still be the same. So when you can't had that five that big five consulting firm come in and they got this list of three hundred services, did you guys actually pursue that, or you you went a different direction? We started to pursue it. Um, 
you know, I think the cost kind of, we, we saw that and we, we also realized like this is not going to work. Um, the way we pursued it was we picked the, just like a VC picks a portfolio actually, we picked a couple of services, we picked four or five services and we said, okay, we're gonna go to market with this. And so this is how we work with customers. We don't try to, let's go gather all your requirements. Um, and thank you, Ali, for jogging me along here. We yeah. actually, um, we, we pick one or two use cases and we say, yeah. what would really move the needle for you? Is it instant VM delivery? One that we build is instant developer environments. Um, that's one that comes up a lot. Developers don't want servers. The moment they get servers, they start putting things on them. Like yeah. they, they purpose it, right? They put Linux on it and they'll put RPMs and packages and so forth and, and turn it into something. I would rather have an application blueprint where I've got you know my three or four servers with all my services kind of knit together so I can start contributing code. That's what I want. And so that's an instant developer environment. And so whatever that use case is, we figure that out because that one use case um, will drive everything else. It will drive the experience, it will drive the architecture, it will drive the platform. Just like Amazon started out with you know S3, four years later, EC2. And then now you're managing a service portfolio and that's a very different thing because now I'm not gulping down requests from every business unit and saying like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get to this? It's just more and more and more tickets. Well, I'm more in a proactive mode where I can say, hey, 2018, here's the five services we're releasing. Yeah, and, and it relates to these business outcomes that we want, right? Right, right. And these are the business units that said they want it. And um, you know, somebody says, hey, that, that, that service in Q4, I need it in Q3. That's easy. That's a trade-off conversation. Yeah. Right. And um, and and so then I'm managing a service portfolio. And and the great thing about a service portfolio is, you know, so you'll launch like five services. Let's say two will work out of the gate, and th that's great. Um, you know, two will fail and die right away, and that's actually good too. Um, if they die right away, the worst are what at the VC we used to call the living dead, which. You know, a few people use it, um, but not enough. But you can't get rid of it now because you've got a couple of teams on it, but, you know, not enough to kind of really scale it. And if you think at a VC, you know, this is what would happen. There's a few companies in the portfolio who would make it, a few that would die. The ones that were really scary, the ones who would keep coming to you and say, I just need a little more money to get over this next round, you know. And if you just keep investing, we'll eventually make it. You know, you really want those ones to go away. <laughs> right, and I'm sure that uh, with the services you launch, the ones that have a few users are probably really passionate users. Yeah, and, and then what you see is, so this is the adoption thing. Um, so aside, my two biggest failures, as I, I mentioned earlier, um, or maybe before we were recording on the podcast, were alignment, getting everybody to sort of agree to like, this is what we're going to do. And to try to get everybody to agree on this big strategy, you know, is, is a little bit difficult versus, hey, can we agree on this use case? Like, yeah, instant developer environments, you know, I, I get that, right? So then I get away from these arguments of, hey, should it be VMware or OpenStack or Docker or Kubernetes? Be like, no, nah, let's, let's not worry about those yet. Let's figure out, hey, is this what the experience that you want? Is this the outcome you want? Yeah, is this how you want that workflow to go? And once you've aligned there, then the product conversation becomes much easier, right? Um, and so I don't get into these sort of turf wars. And then once you deliver that outcome or that use case, then when you've got three or four teams using it and they're like, wow, this is great, they then become the biggest sort of proponents and, and promoters of that. And a service, you have to promote a service. Um, that's enough, you know, part of the adoption is actually driving the service. You know, how do people know about Amazon or, or Cisco? It's not because they got an email one day, right? You guys have a full campaign going on. Um, hey, here's a new product. You've got people training resellers down to technical people. You've got these podcasts. 
And so internally, a customer needs to actually do those types of things. Um, and we call it out rolling out. The first sort of phase of that is rolling out what we call concierge services, where people will actually handhold you through the services and get you to use them. And, and then once you get through that initial hump of uh, adoption, you can drive further and further adoption. That makes sense. Hey, I don't want to cut this conversation off, but we are running out of time. I imagine you have, uh, both of you have other places to go. We're at the top of the hour. So, um, uh, Pete, did you have any last question you need to squeak in before, before we're done here? No, it's just it, what struck me when he was talking about the, you know, some big requirements list. So 17 years in HPIT, I'm certainly no stranger to like some, you know, big old Excel spreadsheet with weighted criteria and you get some, you know, four digit number at the end that you're supposed to try to weigh different different things against. It, I mean, I guess if I was to summarize all that, I know it sounds like you're saying if you start with the RFI, you've already lost, right? You should start with you should start with what the outcomes are. Yeah, and and start with one simple use case and figure out what the experience is and the architecture you want to drive out of that. And from there, you can start to piece together uh, an actionable strategy that you can drive alignment with. Well, and it sounded like you said, you know, okay, you launch five services one year, two fail, two make it, one's in the middle. Next year, do you launch another five services? Yeah, in fact, your velocity will grow. So one company we did, I think we started them last November, they were launching four services. They're up to 17 services now in eight months. The so first couple- A few years, you've got a portfolio. You've got a full portfolio of services. You've got a full portfolio of services, and then you become the cloud service provider of choice. Right, and that's what you want in an enterprise. Whether if someone's going out to AWS behind or Azure or whatever, you are the cloud service provider of choice. So everything is kind of getting brokered through um, your platform. Nice, that is a nice way to end it. Well, um, I wanna thank you for being on the show today. I, I appreciate your time and you sharing a point of view that we definitely have not been hearing um, much of, if at all. So, so I really appreciate you representing kind of the consultants out there and, and, and uh, the adoption curves and uh, things like that. Pete, thank you for joining me as co-host today. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. And, uh, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I just wanted to say thank you. Sorry. Sure, sure. And, and I hope you'll come back. I hope, uh, you know, in a few months or a year or so, we can uh, have you back and you can update us a little bit more about what you're seeing and how folks are moving along the adoption curve. All right, thank you. Ali, Pete, thanks for having me. Thank you, Anosh. Bye-bye.